We are here in the 11FS offices in WeWork Oldgate in London for episode 52 of Blockchain Insider, the weekly show dedicated to the news of where blockchain meets crypto meets institutions. Today we bring you Stellar in Talks to Acquire Chain, the US Secret Service cast their eye over autonomous crypto, and hashtag 21E800. I'm not alone today. Uh, I'm really pleased to be joined by not one, but two guests. So I'm joined by Pete Rizzo, who's the editor-in-chief of Coindesk. How are you today, Pete? Great. Thanks for having me. Uh, great to have you on. And Anna Andreanova, who's the CEO of Acropolis. How are you today, Anna? Very well, thank you. Perfect. So before we get started, I just want to say a quick word about our sponsors. Today's episode of Blockchain Insider is brought to you by R3. R3 is working with over 200 financial institutions, regulators, trade associations, professional services firms and technology companies to develop on Corda, its open source blockchain platform designed specifically for businesses. Corda is the outcome of over two years of intense research and development by R3 and its members. It meets the highest standards of the financial services industry, yet is applicable to any commercial scenario. It records, manages and executes institutions' financial agreements in perfect synchrony with their peers, creating a world of frictionless commerce. And it's open source. Corda, it's blockchain for every business in every industry business. Head over to r3.com to find out more. So our first story today, quite appropriately, comes from Coindesk.com. The story is that Zcash has paid off a developer to avoid a blockchain split. So the context here is that mere days before the update known as Overwinter was set to execute, a developer effectively threatened to split the network, if he wasn't paid, that is. So um, a gentleman called DJ Mercer said he was going to cease working on the Windows Zcash wallet software and clients and release a Zcash competitor, if he wasn't paid. If Mercer had stopped development on that particular piece of software, where tens to hundreds of thousands of users apparently would have been left without a workable wallet after the next upgrade, which is known as Sapling, and that's due to happen in October. So who has thoughts on this one? Uh, I guess I can lead since it was a Coindesk story. Uh, I'm glad <laughs> you picked this one. Uh, this is one of my favorites from last week, and I think uh, you know, it's a fascinating character study. Uh, you know, we're talking about decentralized blockchains. It's a big thing in the news, and here we have uh, the people behind the technology and uh, the messiness of it. So this was uh, written by one of our journalists, Rachel Rose O'Leary, who covers Ethereum and privacy tech and I think uh, I'm glad you chose it. It's a, you know, I think it's an interesting story and again speaks to just um, how unpredictable the software is. And I guess how far off from being decentralized actually is if one person can make that much of an impact? Yeah, it's all about the people ultimately. I mean, you know, EOS is a great study in what's a well-marketed, mm. um, supposedly decentralized. Yeah, I think as we're seeing all these blockchains sort of go live and into later stages, yeah, the big thing is how will the actual people uh, interact with the technology? And with this one, you know, I think it's, we should say that the Overwind upgrade went off today. There was no problems. But, you know, it exposes a number of issues, right? This was a lone developer who was working on a wallet that was core to the infrastructure for the platform. You know, and it sounds like he was uh, or felt... Like he, I think the quote was, wanted to rage quit. Um, <laughs> he didn't rage quit and, you know, he crowdsourced the money and, uh, you know, everything went well. So I guess, you know, it's a happy story in the end. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, uh, was he was he underpaid or was it just like a, a uh, So this is where you get into the dynamics of like nonprofits and how they work, right? right? So Zcash is supported by both the corporate entity, Zcash company, and then the nonprofit Zcash Foundation. I think I'm a little fuzzy on the specifics. So I would definitely defer to the article, but uh, it sounds like whichever funding source he was working on, you know, there was Im- some impact with the market correction earlier this year, and he found himself uh, feeling like he was a uh, underworked member of the distributed global Zcash team. No, that, that, that's okay. Yeah, it's useful to have the color. I wasn't sure whether it was it was like a malevolent gesture or whether it was you know, the guy just wasn't being 
Yeah, I think that's why, again, like these things, right? Mm -hmm. Was he supposed to be paid? Is this the way that this should work? I think, you know, what we're going to see over the next couple of years is all these big ICOs go live. It's just the beautiful fracturing of all the things that can go wrong. I mean, these things do have to be worked out at some point if these things want to scale. And I believe that was the point of the the upcoming uh, upgrade to to Zcash is is to make it more scalable and more private. If you're going to go big, you have to work out the niggles now. Great. So our second story is also from Coindesk. Um, This is... (laughs) They're not, they're not all, I promise. So this story is that EOS's blockchain arbitrator orders a freeze of 27 accounts. So in what was known as an emergency measure of protection order from the 22nd of June, the EOS core arbitration forum, ECAF, catchy, um, directed the block producers that maintain the EOS ledger to not process transactions from 27 different wallet addresses. Uh, so one observer called this civil asset forfeiture means blockchain, which basically um, is referring to the law in the US where law enforcement practice of seizing private property based solely on the suspicion that somebody's committed a crime rather than any proof they've actually done it. There's a quote from a guy called Kyle Samani of Multicorn Capital, uh, which invested in EOS. The the quote from him uh, is that the 27 accounts were doing spam attacks like the people who impersonate me on Twitter. I'm supportive of scaring the spammers out, he added. Uh, so, Pete, do you want to go first on that one again? Give oh, us another coin desk one. <laughs> I have to start it on this one uh, merely because it's an evolving story. Uh, so, it actually there's a there's a twist here. So, this is something we're researching right now is that it appears that the issuance of this order uh, it's it's not actually clear that this body was the one that did it, or there's some thinking that uh, something uh, essentially this uh, there's been some claims by some of the block producers. Well, so, stepping way back, so EOS is a decentralized blockchain. Uh, they're trying to supposedly. innovate, supposedly, <laughs> right? One of their innovation, core innovations is governance, right? So we've yes. been calling this in our article sort of this grand government exper- governance experiment that EOS is embarking on. And one of this is, as you were saying, there's this idea in the protocol that there's an arbitration forum. There's some sort of entity that issues recommendations or, you know, on how the block producer should handle transactions, whether or not that's uh, existing according to their rules. So the new controversy is that there are some allegations that the order to block these accounts was fraudulent or that this was a fake thing okay. to start up controversy about EOS. So the original story was, again, you know, this narrative that EOS was censoring transactions, that these sort of block producers are colluding, acting like a cartel. And now the new sort of allegation as well, this one block producer called EOS New York, again, these are all fuzzy mm-hmm. names, who knows how many of these entities actually exist, maybe they're working out of WeWorks, mm-hmm. um, but is claiming that the order itself is fraudulent. Still TBD right now. I think, um, you know, again, a fascinating story that we're trying to cover in real time. And the real question is, who's who even at this table of governance, right? So you have this, even though this technology claims to facilitate government, the governance, again, clash of personalities, people. Mm, absolutely. But I mean, I think we're going to see it EOS is, um, I mean, it's basically a federation right now. It's not It's not a centralized network, right? Mm. So a limited number of nodes and, you know, what's a fairly small number. And obviously the challenges of, you know, of the launch and you know, so on and so mm. forth. I think, I mean, ultimately, we keep coming back to the same issue. Uh, the tech can't save the world. It's all about the people, mm. right? So, so I think a lot of the optimism that was uh, prevailing and driving vast amount of market activity in, uh, in autumn of last year, now people are kind of waking up and saying, okay, well... Mm. Well, I think EOS has got kind of a yeah, bad rap, too. I mean, they, you know, there sure, is something yeah. to be said about the free market of experimentation, right? So yes. if you want to make a more centralized blockchain and you think there's a market for that, you know, all the power to you if people Absolutely. want to fund it. Yeah, uh, most commercial blockchains are going to be that, mm. right? So that's absolutely fine. But it's the moral hazard of having, you know, an infinite balance sheet after a year-long ICO, right? Mm. And 
Yeah, there's also, as you're right, there's no malicious technology. There's only malicious people using the technology Absolutely. in the wrong, in what is determined by some to be the wrong way. Yeah, I think yeah. it speaks to the broader thing here, which is, you know, what is the centralization in these blockchains? And if you have people who are arbitrarily censoring transactions, like what is their motivation? Do you trust them? And I don't think there's a technological way to solve no. that. I think that could be the conclusion of EOS, but I mean, it's a very expensive, worth, probably worthwhile test to figure that out. Yeah, I think the whole the whole issue of, um, of governance is really going to play out once a lot of the, the funds that have been raised last year are going to start kind of unraveling a little like bit on this when I hear blockchain governance my brain instantly goes off just <laughs> no, but I see, I see Anna's point like if you've got that much money somebody needs to work out what you're going to do with it and how it's going to be spent and all that kind of thing and then you, ne- you need some rules in place yeah and the reality is that I mean, every single model has been proposed so far you know, has massive flaws and it all boils down to individuals. So one we will keep an eye on and we'll keep an yeah, eye on it on Coindesk. Yeah, a story for you tomorrow. I know David Floyd, one of our writers uh, recently from Investopedia, is working on it. So Cool. All right, we'll check back to Coindesk for updates. Our third story is not from Coindesk. It's from Fortune. Um, and the story is that Stella is in talks to acquire a startup Chain. So Stella is in talks to acquire Chain. Uh, Chain is a startup that builds blockchain-based infrastructure for the financial services industry. The sale price is rumored to be around $500 million. Uh, what's really interesting is that the rumor is that Stella are going to be paying for it not in dollars, but in their own digital currency, which is called Lumens. Chain's backers, which include Visa and Nasdaq, will, again, according to this article, receive payment in that currency, and then they will likely be able to hold or sell it immediately after transaction, which is really interesting. It's what you know. It's still unclear how Stellar is going to like incorporate Chain into its ecosystem, although um, most people are saying that it's probably a, what we'd call an acqui hire. So they're after the people, they're after mm. the devs in there. Yeah. So I would interject a big question with this one. So this has been going on for a while. I think the the rumor that Chain was going to be acquired, and now the uh, sort of news that Stellar might be involved. I think the big question here, though, is which entity for Stellar is it, right? So that there's the nonprofit development foundation. It wouldn't be the foundation. Yeah, and there's the for-profit sort of capital entity that was established a few years back. I think the founders of Stripe were originally the people behind that deal. Yeah, Stripe's definitely a big big stakeholder. Right, and I I can imagine that at this point it doesn't seem like that for-profit entity is is, is really doing anything. You know, I think the question here is what is the grand plan? Is this like are we talking about Adam Ludwin becoming the CEO of Stellar and this is a Ripple competitor is it something else? It's hard to see like where this ends up, and I guess for me, like what is the how you know what changes in the blockchain ecosystem if this goes through? This is you know, and I'm I'm know a lot less about this than you guys do. But what was interesting to me was that Nasdaq have already said they're going to start using Chain's technology as a payments platform. So maybe we do look down that Ripple route and these lumens become the cryptocurrency that powers the payments platform that NASDAQ is building on chain technology. I find that highly doubtful. I mean, Stella is certainly um, a superior payments blockchain. To Ripple. People are using it to raise ICOs, right? Uh, Only a small number, actually, but originally Stella was developed as... uh, as Payments for developing markets. Exactly, yeah. yeah, As effectively a free payments platform that's Mm -hmm. very, very efficient. So... I haven't done the analysis, so I can't really speak to comparison between Ripple and Stellar, but if you're saying that Nasdaq is already using, I mean, to me, it just seems like you know a move towards actually pushing Stellar towards enterprise adoption. That's what I would have thought is the is the grand plan. Yeah, I mean, if you're looking for a front just hand for a band, here, yeah. you know, Adam Ludwin's a good pickup. Mm. <laughs> I think if you're looking for a strategy behind this, I think it's a little bit harder for me to see where this goes. I mean, to Anna's point, it would make sense why people like Visa and NASDAQ would be prepared to take payment in a cryptocurrency rather than, you know, dollars if they yeah, do but if we can exit straight away. 
Yeah, that was the interesting thing. If they have no lockup, then it's just it's just a, a different form of currency, and they'll, they'll exit immediately. What will that do to Lumens? Is the interesting question, maybe? I mean, I think it, it's a fascinating M and A deal for sure. I think you know the M and A space will probably learn a lot from this. We haven't really seen a you know tokenized company make an acquisition at the scale, so it's certainly going to be precedent setting. I, I listen. I mean, it's definitely coming. Uh, there are so many companies sitting on massive treasuries mm. and very, very low monthly active users on the, you know, on the blockchains. So they have to be growing only through acquisitions. I think for me, I think the, the big question is, you know, how did Chain even get in this position, right? You're talking about they were the money 2020 lead sort of company every year. They, had, you know, if you think about that as a proxy for financial services and where it's at, it's like they had the partnerships, they had the deals in place. So for me, it's like, what what happened there? And is this is this, is this more indicative of the state of enterprise adoption? Is this, does this say that like that is less likely and this is actually moved in the other direction? Yeah, that's a good point. Again, I think... The question to ask is, who are the original stakeholders? Who are the original mm. uh, shareholders of Chain, right? It may well be. It's a way, it's a way to buy them out. I don't know. Mm. I haven't looked into this in sufficient detail. But um, I think Installer certainly would find a very long term, for sure. Yeah, I mean, the interesting thing is, and again, this is one we're going to have to sort of, I think, put put a pin in and come back to, because a lot of the details are still quite murky. Yeah. So when mm. we have more details, we can we can yeah. probably have a better idea of what the strategy is going to be. Yeah, but certainly an interesting transaction. Yeah, no, just to mm. even just to a for the acquisition and b for the fact it's being conducted in you know in this cryptocurrency is, is an interesting yeah. story. Yeah. Cool. So our fourth story today is from Bitcoinist.com. Uh, it's that the Robin the Robin Hood Robin Hood CEO, not the Robin Hood from Nottingham, that would be weird, has no plans to make money on cryptocurrency trading for the foreseeable future. So Vlad Tenev said the value of Robin Hood crypto uh, is in growing our customer base and better serving our existing customers. So Robin Hood uh, started off as kind of a, a fee free trading platform for all kinds of assets, um, stock shares, uh, and has moved into cryptocurrency and has had huge take up off the back of its cryptocurrency trading arm. What's really interesting is that an awful lot of other firms that have taken this route are making a fortune of cryptocurrency fees. So Robinhood saying they're not going to do it is A, well, maybe you could take it with a pinch of salt, but B, also they have this grand plan that they're going to be our bank and offer a wider range of financial services. So maybe they don't want to be seen as somebody who's raking in money from cryptocurrency fees. I don't know. It's, it's an interesting strategy, I think. Uh, nothing wrong with taking fees per se. It's it's just a matter of you know, proportionality. But we all know that fees can be embedded in a whole variety of ways and the user will never know. Um, it's more about is this rhetoric on Vlad's part uh, consistent with their user acquisition strategy for the crypto part of the business, right? And that's something that we have to see. Right? So, you, so you mean so if, it's, if it's fee-free, it's just a way to get people onto the platform? Well, Which is absolutely yeah. fair enough. But if you look at the history of crypto exchanges, you know, every, everybody was fee-free until, you know, in certain parts of the world it was made illegal and there was watch trading sure, and all sure, sorts sure. of stuff. So for me, it's like, I guess I'm skeptical of, you know, people who are new to the space. And I think Robinhood, it's like the question is, okay, are they custodying these things? Like, what are you actually buying when you're using the service? I haven't really looked into it. Maybe they have good answers for all this oh, stuff. Oh, yeah. I mean, the, the custody of crypto assets is, you know, is a separate mm-hmm. Big and very, very important conversations, and I don't know how they're addressing it. Apart from, I think, from what I've read, they are actually acquiring a third-party custodian. Mm. Because, because some of the, that's, I think, that's what the point you're making, yeah. yeah, some of the other services don't actually buy it, do they? So, like Revolut doesn't actually buy it. You don't actually own the cryptocurrency. Correct. You just have a, just yes. have a stake in it. You, you basically have like a, almost like a synthetic exposure to, mm. yeah. to crypto. Yeah, exactly. Whereas yes. you, you think that Robinhood is actually purchasing the underlying asset. Um, I don't know enough, okay. but from what I've read, they're also looking at acquiring a custodian, which I think is a completely smart move, and that's the only thing that 
they should be doing if they want to get uh, licensed and if they want to actually move towards being a bank. So a custodian would be somewhere that that would legally hold those assets whilst they're not being traded. Correct. And ironically, there is kind of inconsistency in the way a lot of regulators treat this insofar as uh, they insist on third party independent custodian, even though in case of crypto, you actually do not mm. need that. <laughs> right. Because the regulation is written for another form exactly, of asset. Exactly, right. exactly. Yeah. But I think what's interesting is that uh, would be to see how Robinhood are going to be acquiring Mm. You know the new the new users for mm-hmm. the crypto offering. If they're going to go really aggressively, or they're going to say, "Guys, no fees, come to us, it's cheaper." Yeah, I think for me, also the thing is, um, you know, it's, it's a big sign that other sort of incumbents in the financial, you know, uh, to retail traders sort of services are coming in, right? I think Coinbase is obviously the market leader here. I think it's mm-hmm. going to be really hard to to leapfrog them. I think the question now is how many people are going to try? How many people start to compete with Coinbase? Right? They're the sort of I, when I look at Coinbase and you know the I see that they're entering a new weight class, right? It's almost like oh, yeah. they were a lightweight, no, no, the now they're a middleweight sure. and it's like, are the heavyweights going to come in? But we, mm. now we know that there's like a middleweight contender here. Yeah, and I mean, it may just be that Robinhood wants to be a forward-thinking financial services provider, which means you have to offer crypto. Mm-hmm. Like, they, they're not actually part of For a broader sure. strategy. It's right. just like they feel like they have to offer it, so it's they do. Marketing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we're talking about it, so it's worked. So the next story up is from a16zcrypto.com. I'm sure I said that completely wrong, but basically it's from uh, Andreessen Harrods have, have, have launched a crypto <laughs> a crypto fund, basically. Uh, so the infamous VC firm announced the launch of its A16Z Crypto, a $300 million venture fund that will invest in crypto companies and protocols. The firm said in a statement, we are long-term patient investors. Um, we've been investing in crypto assets for more than five years. We've never sold any of those investments and don't plan to anytime soon. Um, we structured the new fund to be able to hold on to investments for 10 or more years. And they went on to say we have what they call an all-weather fund. So they plan to invest consistently over time, regardless of market conditions, meaning if there's another crypto winter, uh, they'll keep investing aggressively. So Pete, first off, explain crypto winter to me because uh, <laughs> I hadn't come across this term before and that was really embarrassing. We are long-term patient investors is that just like adult speak for hodlers <laughs> you know? i think so i think it's, I think it's vc firms like, speak yeah, for long-term patient investors yeah. is new hodling sorry so your question was crypto winter ah so crypto winter is this uh term that has come to talk about the times in which there is not a uh you know rapid increase in the valuations of cryptocurrencies right. so for those of you who may be new to the space uh totally fine but there were times when you know the market caps and the prices weren't increasing exponentially month over month you know we have you or this industry has come to use the term winter to describe that right the lack of growth the snow it's cold people are freezing it's it's actually now yeah, you know, and so the last yeah. time the crypto winter was when really the depth of it was January of, you know, 2015 when it hit like $200, mm-hmm. right? Nobody was making investments. People were scared to, you know, continue working in the industry, right? You really got the, I guess the why I like the term winter, it's just like you have this, you know, this deep freeze and, you know. This is the cyclical nature that we're finding of the industry. It's very seasonal. The assertion here uh, that Andreessen Horowitz is, is making is that they are willing to get us to this eternal crypto summer. <laughs> <laughs> Do you believe them? Do I believe that they're going to stick around? Yeah. I think so at this point. I think, you know, it's a good sign for the market that they're saying this. I think they came out with a strong statement uh, for very obvious reasons. I, you know, I, I think I've, having lived through a winter, um, the thing is that you never know it's a winter until you can't possibly imagine that you'll ever see summer again. Okay. <laughs> so I, I think there's a lot of contention that, like, we're in a, a winter right now, and I don't think the pain is, like, great enough. The pain is going to so come. we're in autumn. We're in autumn. <laughs> because the, the pain is going to come when these ICOs are failing, because 99% of 
most artists fail, 99% of these tokens are going to fail. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you talk about these like Zcash guy paying off something, EOS guys, uh, is there collusion? This is going to happen on a, a massive scale, right? So all this money that's being pumped into the system, um, you know, you have 12 million in crypto kitties, which is my bet is probably this year's change tip, you know, sort of a flavor of the month kind of idea that's in passing. I think, you know, winter is defined by a such extreme cold that you can't sort of see the light at the end of the tunnel. I just, I don't think we're there. I think we need to experience a bit more. Yeah, I mean, in terms of the investment on their part, in terms of the timing on their part, like if if what you're saying is, you know, we're not in a winter, then that then their timing is doesn't suck. If we are in a winter, then their timing is kind of interesting. Although um, I would say that this comes as a surprise to absolutely no one that Andreessen Harris has moved into this space. Of course, yeah. I think, I mean, I'm suddenly more uh, sceptical. It's a great statement. I think what's a lot more interesting is that they suddenly made uh, a very considered move of, of having a first first woman GP. Mm. And absolutely. And look at her background. It's a political move. It's an absolutely political move. So, so what is her background for people who don't know? So she was... Um, she was with the Department of Justice. Okay. And she was working in... She worked on a lot of the initial law enforcement exactly. um, activities. So she She's was dealing with Man Gok. She was dealing with like the Silk Road investigations into the, those cases. So she was very early on, uh, 2015, yeah. sort of emerged as the person who was public facing from U.S. regulators. Yes, and absolutely. She was with the DOJ, she's now on the Coinbase board. This has been sort of a slow evolution for her into the space. And okay. I think, and yeah. now she's running this fund. Well, well she's general partner. Yeah. 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 I mean, GP means, yeah, suddenly involved in, in active decision making. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's that's very much a kind of political statement, um, you know, and like we're here to stay and we're serious about this. Will they be hodling or flipping? Uh, I mean, guys, it's very simple. They state that they have what, a 10-year fund structure. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Right? There's nothing. Uh, I'm sure they have their permissions in their uh, LPAs to recycle the capital. Mm-hmm. which is the whole nature of, of crypto investment. I'm absolutely certain that we'll be doing this. I mean, it's not a million miles away. But I mean, crypto investment and VC investment are you know, not, not a million miles away from each mm-hmm. other in but, terms of attitudes. But very different liquidity profile, and that's why a lot of VCs are moving into that, right? Because you don't have to be stuck in like five, ten year kind of recycling. Uh, okay, absolutely, right? yeah. yeah, yeah. Again, going back to the winter analogy and why it's useful here, uh, you know, did people think it was a good idea for Tim Draper to buy $607 Bitcoin when it was 200 right? You're going to see this thing where people will get in now and then there's the, you know, sure. this is why it's not really the winter yet. It's like they'll, the, there, there's more, you know, or maybe it never gets there, right? Maybe people like Andreessen Horowitz are enough to stoke interest, but, um, yeah. Yeah, I would say that yeah. their move would probably stoke some interest yes. amongst amongst yeah. more maybe cautious. Yeah, yeah. M- money doesn't solve all problems, right? The space has a lot of money right now. What it doesn't have is maturity and understanding and mature technology so to to your point i think it's very much a political statement it's that to, to reassure mm-hmm. a lot of people that the last month have been obviously pretty contradictory the market isn't fantastic will they be actually sticking to every word of this and hodling no and in fact there will be bad investors if they were to do so Interesting. Okay, another one to see how it plays out. So the next story is slightly different. It's from Fortune again, and mm-hmm. it's that Microsoft and Ernst & Young, or EY as we're supposed to call them now, have launched a blockchain tool for copyright. Uh, so Microsoft announced a plan on this week that it's going to collect royalty payments for, for creatives, so authors, software developers, uh, musicians um, using blockchain technology. And the aim is to overcome the problem of the number of middlemen in the creative industries who charge huge fees, who obscure from creators where they're actually making money. I um, mean, this is a hugely, any, any of the creative industries are huge 
hugely complex. You've got loads of people involved. Uh, the example given in the piece here is that a video game featuring a musical clip, for example, could give rise to different royalty payments. The software developer, the songwriter, the performer, and so on. The task is made even harder since the rights to a given work often bought and sold. So it's not even clear who is actually entitled to the payment and where the money should go. So um, this is a problem that uh, people have been mooting blockchain as a solution to for a long time. I think the fact that we've struggled to get any traction probably indicates that it's not as it's not as easy it's not the perfect solution that everybody thinks it is i mean the creative industry there i mean people like agents and agencies in the middle have so much power here that whether they would even you know whether it's even possible for them to reduce that power is, is questionable i don't know what your guys think thoughts are on this one i can say that uh, you know again well-worn idea different parties executing it i think you know the problems are obvious where a blockchain fits in or how that technology solves anything TBD. I, I, I don't know. I, I think I have I have a problem with this idea that we're, we're gonna. I think the use cases where there's um, you know sort of existing problems and known industries with known stakeholders. I think they, they'll be some of the last people to adopt this technology. Sure, absolutely. That's why I think it's all about how they position up their solution, right? If they have enough runway to actually start creating a new ecosystem. And it's arguable that, I mean, it's interesting as well, there's a couple of points. I think it's arguable that Microsoft might, given how embedded they are in all sorts of different industries. Um, the other is that whilst this may not be something that Taylor Swift's going to use, maybe the person who sits at home and makes music in their bedroom and ends up hearing their song played over, I don't know, an advert somewhere, maybe it is a solution for some of those smaller players. Maybe you end up with a two-tier ecosystem. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I can see this going to I mean yeah I was going to say indie but yeah, uh, yeah. But it would be, be on the times I've seen but uh, equally I think Taylor is a great example but of course she could only pull it off because of her stature and because of her of her you know personality and inability to kind of drive those decisions she could actually be a you know, a great ambassador for this, a great mm. spokesperson yeah. for this, Given, for this project. I mean, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. We're referring there to like her decisions to put music on certain platforms or not platforms, sure. depending on, you know, w- how she feels she is being treated as an artist. Absolutely, yeah. She should become a shareholder. Totally. Yeah. I, I believe, I also believe that the, the real Taylor Swift probably is behind those decisions as well. I don't believe like they're using her as a poster child. <laughs> I suspect she actually is that, mm-hmm. does mm-hmm. think that way. But, I mean, it's, it's interesting to see how, basically for us, it's interesting to see how uh, these technologies can be used in other industries and maybe how that can feed back in to, to, to broader financial services. I think humans are habitual, though, right? I think it's like, how are you changing habits with this, is mm. the question. And I think broadly in blockchain, I think with the, in absence of tokenization, I don't think habits have really changed. Yeah, so it'd just be the same thing done differently on a different yeah, right. technology. It's like, how are you actually going to get someone to use the service? I don't know. We'll, we'll keep a close eye on that one. Oh, but that's a different question. I mean, like, usability is a massive issue. Right, yeah. Right. So, uh, yeah, until that's solved. I didn't mean to open up that can of worms. Let's avoid that. Let's avoid that rabbit hole. So moving on to Forbes, a story from Forbes, which is that the U.S. Secret Service has said that action is needed to address anonymous cryptocurrencies. Uh, so a gentleman called Richard Novi, who's the deputy assistant director in the U.S. Secret Service's off investigations. My goodness, what title! Said in a written testimony to Congress last week that the U.S. should consider additional legislative or regulatory actions to address potential challenges related to anonymity enhanced cryptocurrencies. He says that they are clearly ripe for illicit use um, in an effort to subvert legitimate law enforcement inquiries. So, I mean, he's referring to, I believe, the likes of Monero here, which are designed deliberately to be used anonymously. Well, he probably has a point to, to a certain uh, extent I in the, the way they are being used. Not 
I think that phrasing is is kind of odd. It's like they're are they deliberately designed to circumvent that, or do they use technology to achieve something that is now possible, and that possible is something yeah, that we're now describing in that way. So mm. we saw this in Japan, right? So they came out, and it's I, I think there was some story that was reported. I didn't, uh, I, I didn't know, I never got that confirmed to the extent for my liking, but uh, where I think they said they were going to take some actions on privacy coins. It sounds like law enforcement uh, is doing that now in the U.S., but this is the same thing, right? So the bid license hearings in, from New York in 2014, there was all this talk about anonymity. You know, I think it's an interesting data point, right? I mean, there's going to continue to be friction uh, with these privacy coins, but I think it's the language that we talk about them, right? It's now pos- It's now just technologically possible for us to have blockchains that enable exchange between parties who don't know each other. That's what's technologically possible. So I think uh, from a regulatory standpoint, um, right, it's, you know, I guess the need to address, it's like, how are you going to address that? Yeah, I mean, it, it, the, the pa- regulators will always look at the worst possible use case, I imagine. And, you know, the language you've, you he uses here, as you said, is very telling because it's, it's well, clearly they're going to use it for illegal stuff as opposed to like, I mean, I and then this is the whole problem with regulating the space, right? There's always two sides. In fact, um, our next story gets onto that a bit more. But like, there are always going to be two different ways of using this legally and illegally. And it depends if the law enforcement comes down too hard before anybody's had a chance to see the good it they might bring all the advancements they might bring then is that problematic yeah it seems uh it seems kind of arbitrary to state that this uh, you don't know that there are going to be good uses for this kind of technology um so good i think that it's arbitrary to us there. but i don't necessarily think it's arbitrary to him i think he's quite clear that it's going to be like yeah. bad and look there's no doubt that it will right i think this this stuff gets projected a lot right when a regulator comes out and they say things in certain ways it gets projected so it's just worth stating the mm-hmm. antithesis of that and i think the antithesis for that is that it's technologically possible, right? So uh, uh, going back to the specific language, um, they are right for illicit use, but, you know, that's something to maybe find a more proactive solution for that isn't, you know, like some other countries have done where they've banned it entirely. But guys, I mean, it's, it's the same rhetoric that's being used to take a tail, a whole number of, of rights around the privacy space, right? From, from, from you know, counter-terrorism measures to, you know, to what have you, right? I mean, I'm big on privacy. I think it's a very important aspect um, which we and it's a battle that we pretty much lost by now. So sad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It doesn't sound like he's going to be back it's in a tool. town. It's a tool. It's inevitable that it will be used. I, I mean, equally, we can talk about the issue of gun control, right? Yeah. Or cash is going to be used illegally. Exactly. So long as cash is anonymous. It's a conversation. Yeah. yeah. Our final story today is from CryptoGlobe.com, and it's the fact that uh, the uh, British uh, government has been hearing uh, from three of the largest crypto companies, and uh, they've been attending what's called a UK Treasury Select Committee. So basically, it's uh, a number of senior politicians are formed to uh, to form a group to, to hear say, both sides of a debate on various matters. This one happens to be crypto assets. So um, on the one side, you've got people like the likes of CoinFloor. On the other, you had a lady called Isabella Kaminska, who works FT Alphaville. She basically said that the future, she t- basically took from Mark Carney, who's the governor of Bank of England, the future of money, and she said ca- crypto assets can't possibly be currencies as they fail to perform the three basic p- properties of money, um, store of value, medium of exchange, and unit of account. And obviously the other side were presenting a, a different perspective. Um, so the CEO of CoinFloor said that crypto assets have multiple functions ranging from currencies to commodities and everything in between. I mean, for, for me, the point is that at least they're debating it, right? At least they have several different sides, whether they are, you know, 
all clustered to the left or the right mm. well, is another matter. Uh, first off, to people who are listening, uh, if you don't read Isabella Kaminska's work, uh, it's one of the great joys in the space is to read it. I think also it's also that you need to take it with a grain of salt. So I, I think my perspective on, you know, if you're going to just hone in on her statement about how they failed to reform the basic properties, I think there's a tendency to over-intellectualize these things, right? I think cryptocurrencies are often defined in terms and with words and things we know, like this last story, right, uh, with this regulator. Um, and it can be very problematic to define things verbally that and because it, it gives connotations it puts it imposes boxes on the technology that might not be there so when she's saying it fails to perform the three properties of money uh, it's okay well it's still it is performing something that was previously technologically impossible so whether or not it's you, not necessarily a yeah. bad thing it just <laughs> right. happens to not be true <laughs> you know it, we don't know what to do with it right we didn't know what to do with silly silly putty we didn't know what to do with a lot of things we create but you know right now it, it seems to have some properties and to you know the what I like to say is the you know the shittiest shitcoin you can still send it from you know australia to canada a person can the assets can can be exchanged so Listen, i'm happy that you know, discussions have elevated above is bitcoin a blockchain <laughs> right so it's it's great right uh, this is interesting to me as well i mean not interesting it's good that they're bringing in people who are actually in the space so outside of um isabella kaminska there was also um the md of etoro mm -hmm. um a gentleman from blockchain and as i said uh, the ceo from CoinFloor. so um having a variety of voices is always important if sure. you're going to be asking questions i think the other thing is just it just takes so long to understand this stuff and it's been defined so poorly by so many people and a lot of people come to quick opinions based on just how they hear it described, right? And it's interesting to me as well, it's two different perspectives. So we've got the guy from the Secret Service saying it's illegal and we must do something about it straight away. And then we've got a different perspective from the UK committee who is saying, all right, well, tell us about it. We don't understand it. I Come in here and explain should, it. The rule is no one should talk about cryptocurrencies. And then, <laughs> like, no one should verbalize anything about them. And, you know, people should use them, maybe, to see what they mm, are. I'm not, not sure about that, <laughs> simply because... You Usability is an issue, right? For sure. But right, I'm just so. saying, like, it's different than, like, you, you do impose something on it when you are, you know, sort of applying existing concepts. I agree that vocabulary is, is, is kind of problematic, but also to, to the point of, you know, crypto is not a currency. Well, I'm sure I'm going to misquote Einstein, but there's a, there's a famous quote, uh, fish birds ability to fly, right? I think it's yeah. kind of one of, yeah, yeah it's, it's kind of one of those quotes. Uh, but yeah, it, it, it's, you know, we have a new instrument that that combines features that haven't come together prior, right? So trying to label it is, or trying to put it in a box, you know, is this currency, is this you know, programmable money, is this X, is this Y, uh, is very difficult. I think what is really important is almost to start with a new vocabulary and really educate people on that basis. Um, I think so long as the conversation is stuck or is rotating around is crypto equal money, that conversation is not going to go very far. It needs to be, you need to have a broader perspective on it. Absolutely, yeah. Mm. And that is impossible without understanding what's possible and you know, the realm of what's possible. And if you, like, you know, I read in technical white papers literally on, you know, on a daily basis, the better ones actually talk about the fact that, listen, we are here to lay the framework of you know the basics of a protocol but how it can be used we don't know it's yet mm -hmm. it's yet to be defined you know we can we can envisage certain kinds of interactions certain types of users certain types of incentives but we don't know until it's used mm. and that's the reality of it and it's 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 how do um existing systems and infrastructures cope with the idea of something that is not easily defined and doesn't have an obvious use and that thing that's where they panic they go well we don't know what For it is sure. or what to do with it yeah, i mean it's just the fear of the unknown that's also 
has grown in size and in stature to have you know, to be a very viable kind of parallel economy. Mm-hmm. And that worries. That's always going to worry government. So there's some stories we didn't have time to cover this week. Uh, one from Reuters, uh, which is that South Korea's BitHum loses $32 million in digital money heist. Another one from The Verge, where, and I'm going to say this wrong, I'm sure, uh, NVIDIA? NVIDIA. 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 I know they make (laughs) laptops, but um, the CEO says that the next gaming GPU announcement won't be for a long time. One from Finextra, where Commerce Bank has joined the enterprise Ethereum Alliance. Reuters are saying that Bitfinex chief strategy officer is departing. And we do have one final one from Coindesk, um, which is that the Tron price spikes after blockchain founder acquires BitTorrent. So plenty more news out there this week if you want to go and uh, take a look. So our next segment is Tweet of the Week. Tweet, 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 tweet. It's the Tweet of the Week. Tweet of the Week. Uh, so crypto Twitter went a bit crazy this week over the 21E800 hash. This week's Tweet of the Week comes from a Twitter user called at Boogie Crypto, and it reads, another explanation to this whole uh, 21E800 thing is that we actually do live in a giant simulation, and Satoshi Nakamoto is the creator of this world simulation in which we live. He has implemented himself in this simulation to leave breadcrumbs for us to find answers about our existence. Do we want to start with this slightly more logical explanation and end up how we explain how we got there? Or This one's a very hard one to find an entry point on, I would say. <laughs> so so I have I have a little bit of context from um, our own dear Colin G. Platt, who couldn't be with us this week. So this, the, the, the explanation he gave me is that this is the block header from the latest Bitcoin block at the time. Um, the block included 21E800, which apparently refers to a simplified theory of everything in physics. Um, I have to take your word for that. I have no idea. Several people speculated the block was mined specifically to include this, whilst others pointed out that it was likely happenstance and should occur relatively frequently. In fact, it's appeared in a block header roughly every year that Bitcoin has existed. Others took a very different stance putting out theories that included a time-travelling Satoshi, or that the underlying cryptography of Bitcoin has finally been broken by quantum computing. <laughs> I think as a conspiracy theory, it's fantastic, right? And uh, to the extent that it could be used as an educational uh, tool for people, right? So these are the hashes that are being produced in the blocks by, you know, seemingly by the miners. The allegation here is that Satoshi himself is secretly mining and letting us know that he is still there uh, with this strange code that he's never said anything, or he or she, sorry, I preface that. Yeah, you know, I think uh, the commentary was uh, pretty funny, but for people who uh, followed along the story, right, you had some great commentary. Emin Gunsire, famous professor, weighed in and said this happens actually regularly, mm-hmm. and it's a random uh, you know, thing. So, I, you know, a funny thing, kind of a seemingly trivial thing, but, you know, I think things like this are good. It does actually get people exposed to, like, learning that how Bitcoin and other blockchains are technologies, right? So it, it actually, while it's a kind of ridiculous thing, and Twitter probably got carried away, uh, there's a lot of educational value here in understanding just like what this thing is. Yeah, absolutely. And listen, if it gets more people are interested in in computer science and mathematics rather than taking selfies, all for it. Fantastic. Yeah. I mean, I'm just uh, relieved that I didn't have to try and explain the theory of time travel because at one point this week no, that looked it like it was going to happen. Yeah, yeah. Um, and physics was never my forte. I mean, that would certainly be a great twist to the Bitcoin story, right? If mm. that was true. You know, the yeah. movie, when they film the movie, that would be a great part. Right? <laughs> great ending. <laughs> Just for our final segment today, Colin caught up with MEP Dr. K. Swinburne this week. I'm here with Dr. K. Swinburne, MEP and Vice Chair for the Economic Monetary Affairs Committee in the European Parliament. Thank you very much for coming on and seeing us today at Blockchain Insider. Pleasure. So we're at the, the BAI Conf um, talking about um, alternative investments within cryptocurrencies. This is something that uh, you've talked a bit about, uh, and we're very interested to kind of hear your take on 
what is what is the European Union thinking about cryptocurrencies? Is this something that you guys understand? Is this something brand new that nobody's even thought about before and all of us are coming to something and you go, well, we don't know what to do? Or is that completely mistaken? I think there is a general feeling within the Parliament, more so than some of the other EU institutions, that we want to really facilitate this new technology. We want to look at what it offers. We want to look at some of the positive sides that this might actually bring. And certainly some of the EU member states are very advanced in using the technology underlying crypto, so the distributed ledger technology. Many of them are actually very keen to see what that might do, particularly within some of the, the systems for democratic expression. Mm -hmm. So there are very many uses to the technology, so people are comfortable exploring it. But when it comes to financial markets, people are a little more cynical. And I guess partly because the entire cryptocurrency world came about in a very dark fashion and very much under the radar in order to avoid being seen and avoid being found as to who was behind all of this. That gave, gave it a, an initial very sinister sort of angle to this and people feeling that they were trying to avoid the regulatory umbrella for things like money laundering and maybe for some of the funding of other activities in our societies we might not support as politicians. Which is completely understandable, especially given that, um, given your role in society, avoiding the law is not something you go, yes, let's, let's welcome this with open arms. But do you think that today in 2018, people look at this and say, Bitcoin, Ether, all of this is 100% money laundering, or has their understanding advanced? I think there are still some who probably feel that that, that is the case, but very many of the, my political colleagues now are much more advanced in their thinking and certainly have a greater understanding of what the opportunity here might be. And certainly, in many instances, we know that Europe has got a glut of savers, people who put money into a bank account but never make an investment in order to have the growth for their future sustainable uh, income in retirement. So we're now seeing a new generation of people who realize they have to make investments, they have to put their, their money to work somewhere. And so looking at alternatives, like whether or not it is in crypto, certainly when I go around the underground here in London right now, I'm seeing huge numbers of advertisements for crypto assets and crypto funds. And therefore I would suggest that, that people are a little more aware there are opportunities and politicians are keen to facilitate whatever might actually give those investors an opportunity to grow their money. They're also very cynical. They also are very aware that they also need to offer investor protection. Traditional investment products are very highly regulated. They do offer consumer protection and there are all sorts of schemes that would refund or recompense an investor if they've been missold an asset. And in this early stages of cryptocurrencies, crypto assets, it's very difficult to see how you might get that level of recompense and investor protection. And, and the question that I would ask, because I think you, you hit on some very interesting things around investor protection. A lot of these, because they kind of come from the community or decentralized, whatever you want to call it, may not necessarily have somebody standing behind them. Obviously, if I were to go to a licensed, regulated institution that happened to deal in cryptocurrencies, if something goes wrong, I have an identifiable partner. However, if I'm trading a Bitcoin and I lose the key to my Bitcoin, I've lost my Bitcoin. Is that something that you think we need new laws for, or is that something that needs to be fit and understood within the existing regulatory scheme? Well, I would be comfortable with a very strong regulatory framework, and one in that the industry itself got together to try and shape. 
So for me, it's always better when the industry and some of the, the leaders in the technology come together and say, we are better off under some form of regulatory framework, which will give us all a bit more credibility and legitimacy. And sometimes regulation isn't about stopping you do things. Sometimes a, a very good regulatory framework can facilitate and give comfort to certain types of investors, which will allow them to then come in and, and give you that layer of depth in your markets that you might not have at the moment. So for me, it's legitimizing through a regulatory framework can be a very positive thing. It doesn't have to be a negative one. I would absolutely echo that. And, and to that point on, on regulations, whether it's coming from inside the industry or from regulators, we've heard a lot and we've talked a lot about what happened uh, last week in the United States with the SEC speaking about um, Ethereum uh, and decentralization, whether that impacts its security status. What's the common thinking in Europe right now? So the U.S. seems to have got itself tied up a little in, in some sort of supervisory oversight uh, battle going on. CFTC would like these to be called commodities so that they would have total control over what's going on. The Fed are still unclear whether or not there should be a currency and therefore under their guise and remit. And indeed, the, the SEC believe that these are securities and therefore fundamentally it should come under their remit. So there is a slight competition and we've just heard on the panel earlier today that this individual States also see this as being a role for them. So you've got another layer of complication in terms of who's competing for the, the right to control this particular asset class. So there's a concern that, that they're not going to get it right. In Europe, we're in the same situation where the European institutions, so the Commission, the Parliament and the Council, have basically decided that they want to see this run a little. They want to see where this may fall out. They want to not stop innovation. They certainly don't want to be the entity that actually prevents Europe from being a leading light in the future of, of DLT and any form of, of crypto assets going forwards. However, we're also seeing individual supervisors across the EU28 who are saying, actually, we already know that the crypto asset investments are in many instances already encroaching into a highly regulated market environment. And when they do, they want to see them actually treated the same, so a level playing field. So for example, the AMF have said, as far as they're concerned, crypto assets generally all crypto assets for them would be considered to be a financial instrument and lo and behold that means they would then be subject to the markets and financial instruments directive and regulation a very onerous piece of legislation that dictates how you can trade where you can trade and who can trade and so if you come under that remit under that umbrella it becomes quite an onerous thing for people to have to deal with other regulators even within the eu are not agreeing to that and are saying actually no, we need to, to step on this with very much more cautionary route to, to getting them under the supervisory umbrella. So where it's a derivative platform, a very traditional standardized derivative platform um, that's already highly regulated under the EU umbrella, when they produce a product such as an ETF uh, fund, which is actually listed based upon uh, an underlying crypto asset, if they're coming to the market, then they get treated like any other ETF listed derivative. So you can't advertise it, you can't do anything that you wouldn't be able to do with any other derivative product. So that seems to be a little more proportionate and a little more facilitating rather than trying to prevent and stop. Definitely, and the, the AMS, the French regulators approach, does also pose a lot of questions as well around marketing, which is a, a big common theme that we've seen around how these products are marketed, in particular the general retail investing public or the non-sophisticated investors. 
Do you think that that's something that is on the agenda of, of the regulators and, and yourselves? It is very definitely on the agenda and certainly in Brussels we've already had a parliament own initiative report looking at the cryptocurrency world and we've also got a large piece of work coming out from the Commission which is about the fintech strategy for Europe and one is, is a little more facilitating than the other so I'm hoping that, that over time we will have a very mature and a much more advanced conversation about the benefits the DLT could provide European citizens overall, rather than just looking at how we might just provide investor protection or stronger anti-money laundering considerations. They've already been brought under the umbrella for both of those already. So I think we've dealt with them. We should now actually move on and allow a good framework to actually facilitate their future use. And one question I'll have to ask is, as the, the UK looks to transition outside of the European Union, are cryptocurrencies and DLT something that's on the agenda of how that might work within um, a, a post-Brexit world, um, working with the EU, or is that something that can kind of hasn't come up quite yet? It most definitely has come up, and certainly just fintech generally. I mean, the UK is trying to position itself. We have Fintech Week uh, coming up the first week of July. It's a huge investment, not just of, of assets and money, but also of, of resource and political time in Westminster right now, where they know that the Global Financial Centre, based in London, has always stayed at the forefront because it's evolved over time. We know we've got a technology bubble here at the moment. It's, it's actually really, really a good thing. It's not a bad thing. And London, of all places, is going to to try and encourage that. And with Brexit, it's an opportunity for us to leapfrog some of the issues that Brexit will bring. So some of the questions about location policy I keep hearing about, and I keep posing back to my colleagues, is the location policy for clearing of Euro-denominated assets going to be such a big deal if we have distributed ledger technology going forwards? Well, we have a decentralized system. Does location really matter going forwards? Should it be the, be, you know, the primary concern? I would suggest not. I think so long as we have very good risk-managed systems for our market infrastructure, particularly if it's DLT-based, then you actually lose the location argument very, very quickly, and hopefully for the benefit of global investors. I think we can all agree that better risk management systems are, are for the greater good of the financial system, whether it's the new technologies or more traditional. Um, so thank you very much for coming on and sharing all of your insights. Really hope you can come back and tell us more about the developments in the future. Pleasure. So just before we go, 11FS, the company that brings you this podcast, are a challenge agency who help banks, asset managers, FMIs, and anyone with a challenge in blockchain or DLT to achieve more. If you want to understand how to commercialize blockchain projects or have a speaker for your next event, we hope that you'll get in touch. Hit up our website, 11FS.com, to find out more. So thank you very much to my lovely guests for joining me today. Um, where can people find out more about you, Pete? Find me on Twitter, Pete underscore Rizzo underscore, or of course, uh, you know, editor in chief of Coinus.com. You can read our content uh, every day. Uh, at Coindesk.com or uh, at Coindesk. Perfect. And Anna? Uh, you can find us at Acropolis.io, Acropolis with a K, and uh, Twitter Acropolis.io, one word. Perfect. Thank you so much. Thank you, guys. Also, I have to thank the amazing production team here at 11FS, Laura Watkins, our producer, and Michael Bailey, our editor, along with assistant producer, Patrick Barisha. Thank you for listening. If you like what you've heard, subscribe to our podcast, leave us a review on iTunes. Those reviews help us so, so much. And do spread the word. Tell all your friends and colleagues to listen to us too. We'll have more Blockchain Insider next week. Goodbye. <laughs>